Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we talk about one of the most famous post-World War II Japanese murders in history. Mm. And I'm not going to say anything more than that. Okay, saving all the little juicy tidbits for the episode itself? Yes. All right, great, man. We're getting down to it. Hey, it's a beautiful day here. It is a big day for Muriel and I. We have reached the first of many goals over at our Patreon, so now we are going up to two exclusive episodes a month. Thanks to the newest batch of signups, Big Loves goes out to Brenda E., Anna, Jessica E., Roz, and Kelsey W., who bumped up her monthly pledge. As independent self-produced podcasters, this is how we get the dollars to support what we do while we grow. And in addition to two true crime exclusives a month, we're going to start releasing one non-murder podcast a month on our Muriel's Murders Patreon. We'll say a little more about that in our outro. Plus, we'll shout out our newest five-star reviews. Okay. So, this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So, if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Plus, we'll probably do a little cursing and joking. So, if you're sensitive to that, turn us off. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No! Okay, let's get started. Without those juicy tidbits, it's like going out to a restaurant and not getting any appetizers. You know, I'm starving. Where's my food? You know, know, where's this main course? I know you love appetizers. <laughs> Let's get this started. Okay, so this story is about a Japanese painter uh-huh. named Sadamichi Hirasawa. And it starts in post-World War II Japan. Man, Japanese. I love art from Japan in general. I mean, I just... Uh, painters, painters are so cool. <sighs> sorry, <laughs> well, I just actually it's an interesting. Yeah. Don't be sorry. I'm not judging. I was. I'm into it. I yeah. know that you love painters. Yeah, and I know that that art from this era, uh-huh. I mean, all kinds of eras, but this was when there were like blues and greens uh-huh. that had never been like introduced to Japanese painting. Started in like the like early 1800s. Uh-huh. So people mastering those tones you uh-huh. know we're still kind of developing new colors in around this time of the murders anyway it actually will come into play later but this is actually a really cool God, period it's the best thing ever watercolor and tempera paint okay. yeah watch this i got a new color for you handle <laughs> this i dare you freaking awesome All okay right. well we're just gonna jump in please it. do okay, okay 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 so after a bunch of absolutely horrific shit world war ii was nearing its end in 1945 <laughs> thanks for that fast forward version i just had you know we're yeah, gonna talk right. about the show there's so much to talk about yeah. i find this story really interesting because i i think that this is still the case basically like i learned about world war ii in high school yeah. mostly right yeah. and i skipped around i went to three different high schools and i ended up having this weird experience where my history classes overlapped in uh-huh. this odd way where like one school taught world war ii yeah. freshman year one taught it junior <laughs> year and the other taught it senior year yeah. so i actually got world war ii was like the only thing i learned 
in high school. <laughs> yeah, right. So you got three American teenagers worth of World War II public education. Yeah, right. And what's, I think, interesting, and uh -huh. I'm just speaking for myself, this uh -huh. is not broadly, but there is obviously like a certain perspective on World War II uh -huh. that's, you know, you know, from the American educational system. Right. And I, I remember when we went to Poland. Yeah. In real life, Muriel and I went to Poland as we, adults. In real life, we went yeah. to Poland when, as an adult. I was yeah. like in my 30s. And, and I'm not going to go too deep into it, but it was just such a more nuanced. There was just so much more information that like, me who thought oh my god i studied world war yeah, two right. for three years in a row <laughs> right like i was like i get it and then i got out there and i yeah. understood so much more just even the geography mm -hmm, of sure. europe and like knowing where things happen and yeah. we visited a bunch of historical sites and so that was like an incredibly hugely impactful experience for me me too so this story i just found it to be super interesting because it's an aspect that yeah. i actually Maybe lots of people know, but I yeah. just like didn't understand. I just didn't know. So this is like interesting. a awesome. small aspect of World War II that's interesting. But we do have Great. to kind of contextualize it. Yeah. But I'll do it really fast and I won't be boring. I okay. <laughs> okay. So World War II is nearing its end in 1945. In March of 1945, the U.S. firebombed Tokyo, which is like the capital city, mm -hmm. uh, destroying huge sections of this city. In August, the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki with the fire bombings. In total, the bombings killed about a quarter of a million civilians, mostly. Mm -hmm. And then the war ended on September 2nd, 1945. So from there, Japan was under a U.S.-led military occupation from 1945 to 1952. Mm -hmm. It's a little under a decade which was the first and only time in Japanese history that the country was occupied by a foreign power. Interesting. So yeah. Japan was basically under the authority of the supreme commander of the Allied Powers, which was headed by American General Douglas MacArthur. And the country was flooded with around a million Allied soldiers, soldiers from the U.S., the British Commonwealth, and then the Far Eastern Commission. I think the only soldiers that didn't come out to hang were the soldiers from the USSR. Mm -hmm. Now, while Emperor Hirohito remained on the throne, part of the terms of Japanese surrender diminished his authority and forced the country to become a parliamentary democracy. Mm -hmm. General MacArthur imposed social reforms also. So he, he imposed a bunch of reforms kind of similar to Roosevelt's New Deal, stuff like akin to social security, uh -huh. you know, unemployment benefits and basically like formalized social services. Uh -huh. But these are huge upheavals, right? And they're happening in a very short amount of time. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. And uh, they also replaced the Japanese constitution with one written entirely by the Americans. Hmm. Arguably the biggest thing they did in that new constitution was formalizing a strict limitation on the powers of the emperor and forbidding Japan from maintaining a military or engaging in any war. Hmm. So this is the Tokyo that our story takes place in. Mm -hmm. Tokyo in January of 1948 in the third year of U.S. occupation. All right. So although the city was fully open, 
it largely hadn't been rebuilt from the firebombing three years earlier. So most streets were really muddy. You know, yeah. they weren't paved or packed with people and very congested traffic. That was like the hallmark of what was going on. Uh-huh. So some roads in the city were still completely destroyed and impossible to pass. And then people would just kind of get funneled through these other muddy, undeveloped roads. Uh-huh. Telephone lines were still down in parts of the city, even three years into the occupation. And at this point, for the entire country of Japan, there was one phone per 100 people. So communication was just difficult. It was often a lot easier to walk anywhere than it was to try and attempt to take a train or like drive. Right. Well, it sounds like you'd have to walk five miles just to reach a phone. You might as well just walk six and a half miles to to make sure that the person you're calling is also within five miles of whatever phone. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I think my math uh, holds up there. (laughs) It's a really incredibly chaotic time. Yeah. On the morning of January 26, there was a mix of rain and sleet just pouring down over the city. They had U.S. Army trucks join with other commuting vehicles, mixing the dirt from these unpaved roads with sleet. And then thousands of commuters are just slogging through by foot. Wow, that is just so unbelievably different than whatever my the picture in my head that I have of Tokyo of today. Yeah, well, yeah. Which I, you know, don't, I've never been. I want to go so bad. Yeah, but it just is so different. Anyways, yeah. I just to me Tokyo is like the most hyper modern city on the planet. But I don't know if that's true or not. That's just what I think of. Right. Well, that's kind of why you know reading about this, it was so interesting to think even how recent that was. Yeah, but totally. Just how completely different it was. Yeah. So employees of the Tekuko Bank trekked out to the northwestern side of the city in this freezing rain. The Tekuko Bank sat on a corner next to the Shinamachi train station Mm -hmm. and the Nagasaki Shinto shrine. So those were pretty much the only three structures that survived the American firebombing campaign in the area. Hmm. Uh, In January of 1948, most buildings surrounding the banks were still piles of ashes that hadn't been cleared. So we're not just talking about, oh, that those buildings are gone. We're talking about like on your way to the bank, you're walking by rubble. Right, Right, yeah. By afternoon, the sleet had turned to rain. It had warmed up just a tiny bit. And around 3.30 p.m. after the bank had closed, a young woman in her bank clerk uniform pushed her way out of the bank and into the muddy streets filled with the evening commuter crowd. She was disoriented begging for help, but she wasn't able to communicate very much before she lost consciousness. Oh, man. What? When the Metropolitan Police responded to reports of a woman in distress, they arrived to find the woman collapsed on the street outside of the bank. Uh-huh. As paramedics rushed her to the nearest hospital, police entered this eerily quiet bank and inside the scene was normal at first glance right Mm -hmm. the lights were on the desks were filled with neat piles of paperwork and then stacks of cash just out in the open hundreds of thousands of yen yeah so it's closed the bank is closed so she was like leaving at the end of the day when the bank is is closed right but Uh uh-huh it looks like the action of closing the bank had just been suspended. Right. There was no one there. The lights are on and the money is out. Right. The The vault is open. The ledgers are out. Everything is just kind of suspended. The shift time. lead is going to get a write-up. <laughs> okay. Sorry. And on one of the desks was a tray of 
cleanly arranged teacups, just a nice little tray of teacups. Mm -hmm. So police go further into this quiet bank and found the floor below the desks was covered in bodies. What? 15 people, including an eight-year-old boy, were lying perfectly still, surrounded by vomit and blood that had ran out of their mouths. <gasps> like they all got poisoned? Most of the bodies were clustered around the drinking fountain. So they were all over the floor, but most of them were on their way to the drinking fountain. Oh, that's so scary. Paramedics found about six people still alive and they were rushed to the hospital mm -hmm. along with the woman that they had found outside. Yeah. Nine people were pronounced dead at the scene. By this point, residents from the neighborhood had just kind of entered the bank looking for a way to help, which I get the impression that was like a common custom uh -huh. at the time that neighbors in this times of tragedy would yeah. come and just try to do whatever they could right yeah so as the bodies were being removed from the bank the neighborhood people stayed behind to kind of clean up the bank and clean mm. up the mess yeah so at first police thought that it was a case of mass food poisoning mm -hmm. that something had happened at the bank and they had all eaten the same thing and gotten very sick and that was something that was common in Tokyo at the time, not necessarily food poisoning, mm -hmm. but there were so many viruses and diseases kind of spreading through water systems. Sure. Like, you know, yeah. cholera and typhoid and all these different things yeah. were everywhere. And so people were, you know, when you get dysentery, for uh -huh. instance, you, there's a certain type of bacteria, I think it's called Shigella. Uh -huh. And when you get dysentery, you know, horrible things happen like you poop blood, right? Mm -hmm. So there's diseases that are causing some of that stuff around mm -hmm. and so they thought okay maybe it's food poisoning maybe it's some sort of crazy mass event right so at the hospital two of the six people died within an hour of being mm. transported there and eventually the death toll was recorded as 12 people total so 12 yeah. people died at the bank but the remaining four survivors were able to talk and they told a story that had nothing to do with food poisoning. Did it have to do with a painter? Damn it. Here I am talking about how cool painters are. <laughs> Fuck. Did our girl survive? The one who's w walked out of the bank? I believe so. Uh -huh. I kind of focused less on tracking the survivors. It's a uh -huh. kind of a big story. You okay. know, so it's a little hard to go. Into I'm, just gonna, I'm just going to hold into my heart that she's the one that stumbled outside and got some I'm people. pretty sure she, I'm pretty sure she Well, then survive. she helped save the people that did survive because she was one that brought attention to us when people came in and get in the hospital in time. Well, I'm sure what you're saying is very helpful. Well, All we right. need a hero. <laughs> okay. Everyone needs a hero these days. So the Tekuko Bank presents more like a home than some sort of large corporate structure. So just so you can put it in your mind, it has like really warm wood floors, low ceilings. It's a really super homey vibe. It's not like a mm -hmm. big corporate bank. Right? Uh -huh. And with the unusually bad weather, some employees hoped that day that they would get off early, right? But the sleet turned to rain and the day ended up being uneventful except for the bank manager went home an hour early with sharp stomach pains. Mm. He was really sick and he and it was, I think, the second time that week that he had to go home. Mm -hmm. Now, like I said, dysentery and typhoid were raging in Tokyo at the time. So being sick was really frightening, but it was common. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were ill at the time. 
At 3 p.m., the bank closed for business. The front doors were locked, and the bank employees opened the safe and began tallying the money and checks for the daily deposit, right? Mm. So the survivor said a few minutes after closing, someone knocked on the side door of the bank. This is like the employee entrance, mm-hmm. right? A thin uniformed man in his 50s with an official metropolitan office city hall of Tokyo armband was at the door asking for a manager. So he was totally outfitted in the correct clothing. Yeah. As per custom, the man presented his business card to introduce himself. It read Jiro Yamaguchi, MD, Tokyo Metropolitan Office, Welfare Department, Welfare Ministry. So these are all the people who are kind of our version of, I don't know, public health. Okay. In respect for the man's official status, the teenaged employee who opened the door directed Jiro Yamaguchi to the front door to formally invite him into the bank. So he goes around Mm -hmm. and then they unlock the front doors to let him in. The bank's assistant manager came forward, you know, telling the doctor, you know, our manager's out for the day with stomach pains, but like, I can help you. I can assist with anything that you need. So Jiro Yamaguchi informed the assistant manager that a water well about five, like a five minute walk from the bank was found to be contaminated with a type of bacteria that causes dysentery. Mm. And the ministry was trying to proactively prevent an outbreak. And like I said, like dysentery in particular causes all kinds of gross, awful things like pooping blood. Yeah. And it can be transmitted pretty easily by people just not washing their hands, right? Money is notoriously very, very dirty. Yeah. If you ever want to look it up, <laughs> yeah. just know like money is dirty. If you handle money, wash your hands. Money's gross. Uh, that comes yeah. from a person who was a server for like 20 years. I'm telling you, money is dirty. Uh, <laughs> and the welfare ministry was actually aware of at least one person who had deposited money, cash money, at the Takuko Bank that day. Mm-hmm. So the doctor announces that all the bank employees were to take this preventative medicine and that a disinfecting team was arriving shortly to sterilize the building and the money. So this Dr. Jiro Yamaguchi placed his bag on the desk and he pulls out this small metal box. In the box were two bottles with labels written in English. One just said first drug and the second said second drug. So the doctor explained that the bottles contained a brand new, powerful anti-dysentery medication from the Allied forces, essentially the Americans, Mm -hmm. that would make people who took it immune to dysentery, but that the method of application was unusual. So people would, nobody at the bank would be very familiar with the process. He says, it's going to be a little weird, but this is a new medicine we're using. I hate where this is going. (laughs) So... The doctor used everyone's personal teacups to disperse the medicine. All the bank employees, including the bank custodian and his family, gathered their teacups and got in line. That was an eight-year-old boy. So that was, yes. So that was 16 people in total. Mm. Using a little pipette dropper, the doctor then dropped a few carefully measured drops of the first drug in each of the 16 teacups. And the survivors talked about how odd it was because... It was slightly thick, and it felt like most of the medicine stayed in the cup. You know what I mean? They uh-huh. were like not really getting it. It felt like a weird way to 
like they were worried they weren't getting enough medicine. Yeah, right? it's like when you take some cough syrup and then it's in the little cap and then it's still you you're like, man, there's a lot and then you lick the inside of the cap, you know, cuz you feel like that is a significant amount, you I know. Didn't know and then you, you did put that, that back on the thing Nick, and don't tell your you wife kidding? or you anything. Really do that? Oh, God. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm just going to let you imagine if I do that or not. Yes, you know? that's true. Uh, uh-huh. I can't believe you said that. But yeah, that's the vibe, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The doctor then warned that the first drug, the serum that he had dropped in, could damage tooth enamel. So it had to be swallowed in a very specific way. So he tipped his head back. He stuck out his tongue over his teeth, mm-hmm. his bottom row of teeth and then tucked it behind his lower lip to show them how to take the medicine without damaging their teeth. Oh. He then mm-hmm. took a dropper and dripped serum from the same bottle down the back of his tongue, tilting mm-hmm. his head back so it kind of ran down his throat. So he hands out the teacups, and then he pulls out a stopwatch, and he waits until it gets to a minute, and then he signals for everyone to drink. So everybody drinks this liquid. Like we said, it's kind of hard to get out of the teacups. Mm-hmm. And... You know, Survivor said it was really bitter, almost like gin or something like that. And there was just barely enough liquid to make it run down the back of the throat. So most of it actually did stay in the mouth. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, some people described it as having a nasty kind of burning sensation, but they had to wait, right? So the doctor instructed everyone he's going to time them from 60 minutes or 60 seconds and then administer the second dose. So he watches his stopwatch and while he's doing that, he's pouring the second dose into all the teacups, right? Now, the second dose was a more generous portion, the second drug. So mm-hmm. it was a, they were able to kind of rinse out their mouth with the second drug. Mm-hmm. All 16 people then, you know, they take the second dose, they get all this medicine down into their throat, and then they were allowed to gargle water, rinse out their mouths, and make sure there was no oral damage. This is according to the doctor. On their way to the drinking fountain... Bank employees begin to vomit and collapse, some bleeding out of their noses and mouths. So according to survivors, the doctor stood there in the room and just calmly watched until the last of the 16 people lost consciousness. He then took 180,000 yen in cash and a personal check from one of the desks. Inexplicably, he left behind the remaining 300,000 yen. So he left behind almost twice as much as he actually took, just lying out on the desks. That The whole thing uh, uh, took around 20 minutes. It was very quick. And for reference, the murderer, I had to do this math, so yeah. I think it's correct. It took a little bit of zhuzhing. Yeah. But for reference, the murderer took around 8,500 in today's American money. That's what he, that's because uh-huh. inflation was so high. Uh-huh. You know, 180,000, you know, sometimes we our mind goes to like, what it would be today uh-huh. but inflation was really high in post-world war japan or yeah. the u.s op- occupation they forced an exchange rate that was like insane so he killed 16 or you know he poisoned 16 people for 8500 8, bucks in today like like money that would equivalent like basically be equivalent to about 8500 dollars in spending money in today's money right there is so much to unpack there and he left behind roughly a little bit over $14,000 in today's spending power money. He um, left more than he took. Twice just out as in, much. Just out in the open. Yeah, twice as much. Not in, not in a safe, just out on the desks. 
Um, There's so much to unpack there. Are you kidding me? You're saying 20 minutes is fast, but can you imagine being cool, calm, and collected and just like nodding along and being like this official person who's like, okay, now we're going to do this. We have our 20 minutes of doing that in front of people that you know you're killing might as well be a billion infinities. That's so long. (laughs) That's insane. Yeah, it's a lot, right? So remember, keep that in your head. After he takes the 180,000 yen, the man calling himself Jiro Yamaguchi left the bank. So after the police hear the story from the survivors, Mm -hmm. there's this mad dash to retrieve the teacups. Mm -hmm. But by the time the police got there, helpful neighbors had already washed the cups Mm -hmm. and put them away. Sure. So in the end, 12 people were dead, including an eight-year-old boy. RIP, that's so sad. And coroners didn't have enough of the substance to test an accurate picture of the poison. Yeah. They would have had to have the teacups. Yeah. If they had had the teacups, they could have tried to figure out what happened. Yeah. The autopsy that they did suggested poison by something like potassium cyanide or what we call cyanide. Mm -hmm. But the dosage was so small that they couldn't really find much in the bodies. So... The idea was this feels like cyanide, but mm-hmm. we can't. It's a little inconclusive. Oh, fuck. So the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Board or the MPB, which I'll refer to, like I'll kind of use that mm-hmm. acronym, took charge of the investigation. At this point in time, the reputation of the MPB was not super hot. Mm-hmm. So very broadly, Lots of nuance, but very broadly, the policing style in Japan prior to U.S. occupation was kind of like getting arrested was almost equal to being convicted. Mm -hmm. And after interrogation, about 98% of arrests led to confession. So just kind of to, it's kind of a simple concept, but the idea is like, Mm the trend was more to convict people based on confessions after these intense interrogations than it was to actually build a case with evidence. Sure. Right. Yeah. That that was like generally what was happening. Gotcha. So there were very, very few unsolved cases, right? Because of this. Totally. And police were generally feared by the public. A knock on the door was kind of tantamount to mm -hmm, conviction mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Yeah. So U.S. occupation authorities or better or for worse, uh-huh. uh, they removed thousands of police workers from the ranks for being what the U.S. saw as nationalist. And I think from what I've read and what I understand, it was kind of this idea of carrying out police work as a way to punish people who disgraced Japan rather than seeing their job as part of due process. You know, mm-hmm, so people mm-hmm. who believed that nationalism was higher yeah right in their priority than due process gotcha gotcha so this resulted in those workers who maybe had a ideology that the u.s didn't want to have in the police force Mm -hmm. but had a lot of policing experience being replaced with people the u.s approved of that had little to absolutely no police experience Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So gotcha. Occupied forces forces were working on training, like things like fingerprinting weren't used at all in the police force mm-hmm. until up until that time. So like there was lots of forensic stuff that wasn't even a part of policing in Japan yeah. before the US occupation. So they were trying to retrain people and kind of get more knowledge of forensics and stuff like that. It's so interesting. Based on this other project I've been doing, I've been becoming increasingly aware of US 
veterans uh, who coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and their relationship with like the Iraqi police forces. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's dissimilar, but the same. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So we're occupied forces are retraining, you know, mm-hmm. the Japanese police force, but it's really slow going. So then it was like, okay, the MPB had this reputation of being ineffective, right? Because a lot of people now had no policing experiences who were on the force Mm -hmm. and too reliant on the occupied forces. So kind of like this inept puppet police force was like the general feeling about them, right? Okay. So at the time of the mass murder at the Takuko Bank, the MPB was known as this corrupt, incompetent force. They had a bad reputation with the public and the press. Also, about a third of police stations in Japan didn't have a phone or a direct line to other stations. Oh, so that phone per 100 people counted for all the government officials too? Yeah, right. And each police station only had one car at its disposal. So everyone else was like, you got to ride a bike. Like people were super jealous of people who had bikes and then everybody else was walking. <laughs> so it was very like... I don't know why that's funny to me. I well, shouldn't you know, laugh. I don't know. Right. It's less of like a police station and more just like a police. Right, right. So the stakes were really high yeah. for the MPB, right? For the police department. Yeah. This was this massive, unprecedented national crime at a time when the police force was in shambles and the MPB really desperately needed a win to restore confidence in the mm-hmm, public. Mm-hmm. So that's the jumping off point for the investigation. Right. They got skin in the game. They got something to win, something to gain. Yeah. They really want to figure it out. Right. Ooh, I want them to figure it out too. <laughs> I really want to know. It's so creepy that the dude did that. That's crazy. So, I'm sorry, you just... What? You're so um, engaged and it's just really delightful. <laughs> okay. So we're going to talk a little bit. You get mad at me when I don't pay attention I'm to you. I mad at you. I'm a, you condescend to me when I do pay attention <laughs> to you. What do you want? I said you're delightful. If that's condescending, <laughs> then throw me in jail. All right. So the custom of exchanging calling cards we'll we'll get into that in japan mm-hmm. but at the time it was it was extremely common like almost 100% across the board when you met someone mm-hmm. you would exchange cards so that's mm-hmm. either a business card or a calling card mm-hmm. anything that has your name on it and like what you do basically right. so the calling card that the murderer used in the killings was found at the bank so they had it and it was basically the biggest clue that they had besides witness descriptions for anyone to go off of right Mm -hmm. that was the biggest clue so police go to work tracking down this Jiro Yamaguchi MD or at least the printing shop who made the counterfeit card if it was a counterfeit Mm -hmm. but because the custom of exchanging these business cards or personal calling cards at, in Japan at the time was so universal. There was basically a printing shop on every single corner. And finding the one who printed the card was like finding a needle in a haystack. <laughs> They're like, for every phone, we have 13,000 business card printing shops. Which is kind of true, yeah. right? But a couple of other bank managers came forward with some critical information. Mm-hmm. So while they're trying to track down this card, they start getting some phone calls. From other banks? Yes. Or different, okay. Apparently, according to bank manager Yasuzu Ogawa, 
on January 19th, 1948, a week before the mass poisoning, a guy entered his bank. This is the Nikkei branch of the Mitsubishi Bank in mm -hmm. Tokyo. Um, this guy entered trying to pull the exact same shit. So he was a uniformed man with this official Tokyo Metropolitan Office armband and a briefcase. And the man entered the bank, handed Ogawa's card, which again read, Jiro Yamaguchi, MD. Mm -hmm. And the doctor tells Ogawa he had been sent to the bank to disinfect money from a known dysentery carrier who had made a deposit that day. But at that time, no medicine was, was administered. He said, we're going to come back, we're mm -hmm. going to have a crew, da 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 but nothing ever happened. It was just like a practice run to see how far he could start to push this narrative and if it's test his acting chops and everything. So police were convinced the Mitsubishi bank incident was the rehearsal attempt for the massacre. Sure. The only difference was that the doctor had a different armband on. He had mm -hmm. all the same official stuff, but his armband read Tokyo Epidemic Prevention Center rather than like something else right? okay so they're like okay so now we know there's been a practice run and this person was trying to do this thing right mm -hmm. then a manager from another tokyo bank in the ibarra district called police to say the same thing happened at his bank a few months prior in november of 1947 right so the mitsubishi bank happened yeah. a week before and massacre. this one happened months before. And this one happened in November. Right. Man. So. So he says mm -hmm. that the doctor had entered the Yusuda Bank saying he needed to inoculate everyone against a typhus outbreak. And he did administer a liquid to all bank employees in the exact same manner. Like gather your teacups. Line up. Do this thing with your tongue. And they survived? Did they even get sick? He even like used the same pipette to do like the uh -huh. same measurement thing. And then he left shortly afterwards, but no one was harmed. So it was dummy medicine, mm. right? Not real medicine or not real poison. Right. Yeah. It's important to say when we're saying he's a doctor. I mean, actually, maybe he is a doctor. You don't know. Nobody don't knows know. at this point. Yeah. Right? right. Okay. So again, now this sounds exactly like the Takuko Bank massacre setup, right? Yeah. The doctor behaved the exact same way, but the only difference between the other two attempts is that he had a different name. His name was Shigeru Matsui, MD. Okay. Mm -hmm. So just a separate guy. Within 48 hours of these interviews, police now had a group of witnesses, the four survivors and then the witnesses from the two other banks. Mm -hmm. But they still had no hard evidence. They believed the plan was created by a gang of career criminals who held at least two rehearsals before the planned killing. And they had to know something technical about poisons. They even suggested that they might be ex-military. Okay. So they're starting to develop this theory and two days later, they catch a break. The MPB found a guy named Jiro Yamaguchi who worked at the welfare ministry in the fall of 1947. He was discharged after just a month after hiring for improper conduct. And that was all the information they could get about him. Then they found a printing shop on the west side of Tokyo that said it printed 20 cards for a man with that name. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately... No one could find Jiro Yamaguchi because the health ministry employment records were super chaotic and out of date. They were just not 
correct. Uh-huh. So no one could locate his current address. And in another blow, the printer who said he had made the calling cards for Ajiro Yamaguchi was just super old. He didn't keep consistent records, and he couldn't really remember what the guy looked like or when he bought the card. Yeah, so, he's like, man, I'm I'm a I'm in the business card printing business. I deal with ninety five thousand <laughs> customers a month. Right. So he's like, I did it, but I don't know. I yeah, can't remember. Yeah. So that lead runs cold, but. And a stroke of luck or good police work or whatever, it turns out they figure out the card used in the original test run on the Asada Bank in mm-hmm. November mm-hmm, mm-hmm. belonged to an actual real live guy. Uh-huh. Shigeru Matsui was a doctor currently employed by the welfare ministry and practicing medicine in a city just a couple hours north of Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So this guy was real and this card was his card. Uh-huh. Early on, police settled on the idea that near, neither Jiro Yamaguchi or Shigeru Matsui were the killers, that they wouldn't be dumb enough to leave their actual calling card behind. Mm-hmm. But maybe if they could find these men, they could shed some light on who may have been impersonating them. Totally. So the MPB tracked down Shigeru Matsui, MD. So when they find him, you know, he says he has no idea who would have used his card for something like this. And he had an airtight alibi for the day of the mass murder. Yeah. But he does agree to work with police. Uh-huh. Shigeru Matsui said the name card that was used in the killings was one of a batch of 100 that he had purchased purchased the year prior in like a slightly different style than the one he was using currently. Yeah, you got to switch it up with the seasons. Yeah. You can't be giving out the same damn business card day in and day out. So after that 100, he still had 10, uh, meaning there were about 90 mm-hmm. of those cards in circulation. Uh-huh. Shigeru Matsui then handed over every card he received in a greenie exchange mm. over the past year. So he actually happened to keep every card because that was the you custom, trade them is you trade them, which is f- so cool, by the way. And then on the back, he would write down uh, the date that he got the card and where the card was exchanged, like geographically. Uh-huh. So he'd be like, I met this guy at a park. And- Man, if that was me, I would do the same thing, except for that I'd have to be like, uh, you know, Muriel's coworker friend, or like, you know, <laughs> my cousin's babysitter, or whatever. Because right. in my phone, everyone has their name, and then however the hell I know them. Right, right, right. Anyways. So something like that. So he keeps okay. them all in a big like filing cabinet, and he has all that, so he takes really impeccable records. Uh-huh. So police are like, great. Awesome. So we'll go find all the people that Matsui exchanged cards with and arrest anyone who doesn't still have his greeting card in their possession. Mm. So this well, ended up being... Well, the arresting immediately is probably... Okay, sorry. What? So this <laughs> ended up being a fork in the garbage disposal moment, right? <laughs> people, police quickly found that unfortunately... There were a very solid handful of people who didn't keep Matsui's year-old calling card. Yeah. Matsui kept great records, but other people were like, what? Right? I don't have his card. And on top of that, yeah. none of the people who no longer had the card actually fit the witness description. Mm-hmm. So they did have a stable of people that they were looking at, but none of them would have matched anyway. Sure. So that plan kind of sucked, right? And they didn't convict them and force confessions out of them? No. Okay, good. Not yet anyway. Okay, um, right. <laughs> So the not, the other not so good thing that was happening 
was that because the crime was so sensational, mm -hmm. the MPB had about 10 to 15 people walking into police stations every day to confess to the crime. <laughs> so this has happened in other really famous cases. Yeah, of course. Yeah. like pre-internet. That's happened a lot. In the yeah, that was know. like a huge thing when you told me about the Black Dahlia case. Or right, whatever. as if people yeah. were like, oh, I did it, yeah. right? It's like, mm, no, it's you just, didn't. You know, we all, it's just mass hysteria, right? Right, and like a weird sense of narcissism. Anyways, not a psychologist. Not uh, at all. Okay. okay. At one point... There were hundreds of men, women, and children on record for confessing to the murders. There were so many people who had confessed. Whoa. So it was pretty much just pure chaos. <laughs> Trying to claw themselves out of this sort of insane mess that it was, yeah. the investigation had gotten so bloated and huge, right? Mm -hmm. For the first time in police history, they released a composite sketch of the murderer, hoping to discourage the weirdos who were coming out and saying, I'm the murderer. So they're like, fine, this is a, a composite sketch yeah. of the murderer. And if you don't look like him, don't come to the police station, right? <laughs> like, just don't waste our time. Right. But this ended up generating hundreds and hundreds of phone calls a day uh -huh. from people claiming to know or have seen the man in the paper. So oh, instead of no. people walking in and saying, that's me now, instead of the 10 or 15 people a day, yeah. it's hundreds of people a day calling to say, that's uh, my name. Cause it was the first composite sketch in Tokyo. Is yeah, that what you're saying? Right, so it's like, it's like cave paintings or something. It's like doing a stick figure of a dog and saying like, this no, is our dog. Were, it was an excellent uh -oh. rendering. I'm just uh -huh. saying like, it's again, like the fingerprinting thing mm -hmm. where police just didn't use those types of, police tactics the, mm -hmm. that wasn't a part of the police work so the composite sketch was really accurate but it was just like the first time the public had been introduced to the concept of like <laughs> composite sketches when looking for a fugitive and then everybody's like i know that guy you know it was just yeah. kind of you know it was a good move but not it just didn't pan out uh, yeah, okay. all right all right okay by the end of the spring of 1948, mm -hmm. the police had investigated 20,000 suspects Jesus and hadn't yielded a single substantial lead. Oh, no. In another gut punch to the MPB's credibility, by midsummer in 1948, around 1,000 policemen working on the investigation were discharged for taking bribes. Mm. So the only thing at this point that the police felt like they knew and mm -hmm. they're flailing around was that they're dealing with a criminal mastermind an experienced poison professional mm -hmm. in enters Sadamichi Hirasawa okay so our painter our painter so police had actually interviewed Hirasawa before. The painter had met and exchanged cards with Shigeru Matsui mm -hmm. while in the middle of the Sea of Japan on a train ferry. They were traveling from Hokkaido to Honshu. And they exchanged cards and had a chat. I think mm -hmm. that the doctor was kind of interested in what the painter was up to. Mm -hmm. and, you know, they were talking. And yeah, who wouldn't be interested? Painters are so interesting. <laughs> so... This He was a well-known painter, uh -huh. and he was actually, that day, on his way to deliver a watercolor to the crown prince of Japan as a gift. So he had oh, said, Alex, man, he that wanted is one so of those things. freaking tight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's the coolest. All right. So in his first interview with police, mm -hmm. like I said, he's already been interviewed right. once because, you know. Because they exchange cards. Right, exactly. He claimed that he lost Shigeru Matsui's calling card when his wallet was recently stolen by a pickpocket. 
and also in his first interview, Hirasawa went through his alibi for January 26, 1948. Mm -hmm. So this is what he said, where he said he was. He said he had been visiting with his daughter and her husband in downtown Tokyo, and he left around 2.25 to take the train back to his home. When he arrived home, his other daughter and his wife were out running errands, and the only person left at the house was his daughter's American GI boyfriend. Um, so the two of them played cards for a few hours. Mm -hmm. Hirasawa couldn't remember the GI's name. He said it was like Eli or Eddie or something like that. But at this point, the GI was gone. Nobody knew who he was, mm -hmm. couldn't remember his name, and they couldn't track him down. Uh, okay. I mean, it sort of seems like it's your daughter's boyfriend she might like kind of remember his name i mean i think they remember they just don't know they couldn't find him okay whatever it was it was like i knew this guy and okay i don't remember his name and he disappeared but yeah you're right you know of course i'm right okay father's so, instinct always knows best not a dad not a parent keep going thank I you muriel so obnoxious <laughs> so mm -hmm. right now in current time in the summer of 1948 you know, this second younger upstart investigator comes back to re-interview Hirasawa. And during the second interview, the young officer who was interviewing him starts to become suspicious. And it starts with when Hirasawa says he doesn't have a photograph of himself to send back to MPB headquarters for witnesses to look at. Mm -hmm. It's really uncommon at the time in Japan for people to not own photos of themselves. However, mm -hmm. what the police officer didn't really keep, you know, like understand or like keep in his mind mm -hmm. is that Hirasawa had already done an interview and already sent a picture mm -hmm. and he had been not identified as not the killer by the witnesses. But he sits there and thinks, you should give me a, a photo. It's really weird you don't have one and mm -hmm. I don't know why you're not cooperating. Mm -hmm. But he's trying to play it cool, right? And then the young officer gets even more suspicious when kind of apropos of nothing, Sadamichi just launches into once again a detailed account of where he was on the afternoon of the murders without being asked to do so. Mm -hmm. So basically this kid shows up and he's like, I'm here to interview you. And he's like, okay, I don't have another photograph. Mm -hmm. This is where I was, da 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 da. Now the officer takes that as him being even more suspicious. Mm -hmm. Like now you're gonna give me your alibi without me asking for your alibi. So his approach is to invite Sadamichi Hirasawa to dinner. He thinks <laughs> he thinks like, I'm gonna yeah. invite him to dinner, we're gonna mm -hmm. have this like relaxed conversation and maybe more information will come you out. You wanna go grab some Chipotle? Yeah. Get some guac, just hang? Good bit, Nick, okay. okay. So the officer follows his spider sense, right? Mm -hmm. I have <laughs> a question, hold what? on, time out. Sorry, why is the why is this guy back on their radar? Why are they just re-interviewing? Yeah, they're basically just re-interviewing uh -huh. people. I mean, at yeah. this point, they just can't. They're looking at anything that they can get. I mean, okay. things are kind of falling apart. Okay, in the all right. So he didn't do anything that put him back on their radar. Still the same guy he was the first time they interviewed. Okay. Him. So the officer takes him out to dinner, and at dinner they sit around, they talk. No more weird red flags popped up until the very end of dinner. So it was typical at the time for restaurants to have like a restaurant photographer who would come by each table and say, hey, do you want a picture? And you could buy the picture off of them. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So this restaurant photographer approached the pair and offered to take their photo. And the detective, of course, says, yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> that was his whole plan. He wants a photo. Right. But uh -huh. Sadamichi got really weird about it. Uh -huh. And he 
he kind of made a face while turning his head while the photo was taken. Mm-hmm. It's like he didn't really want to take it, mm-hmm. and then he kind of blurred the photo and made it unusable. Mm-hmm. They end dinner, and this officer goes back to MPB headquarters, completely convinced that Hirasawa was the killer. And he starts pushing for Hirasawa to be brought down and interrogated at the station. Now, at first, everyone is really resistant. They're like, we've already looked into him. Uh Nobody has identified him as a killer. This doesn't make any sense, blah, 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 right? But this kid just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And so they're finally like, no harm, no foul. Let's bring him down to the station. We'll interrogate him. (laughs) On August 24th, the press announced Sadamichi Hirasawa's new status as a suspect. Mm. But... Even then, the evidence to the, connecting him to the crime is was circumstantial at best, right? There right. was really not anything hard that was happening. In fact, when the mild-mannered painter's wife and daughter were told about his arrest, they both started laughing, thinking it was a joke. Mm, like when they came yeah, by, yeah. we're like, we're gonna here to pick him up. They were like, oh yeah, <laughs> <for> the murder, <laughs> yeah, right? Okay. Like they totally were just like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So they pick up Hirasawa, and Sadamichi Hirasawa spent the whole time riding on the train to the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Headquarters hiding under a blanket. Why? Uh, I think to hide his identity. So people wouldn't see him? They're just like out in public because they only have one police car, so like we got to take public transit. On the train? Right. So he just wore a blanket on his head. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I could could see that. Okay, that makes sense. So after showing his face to witnesses once again and being questioned, Sadamichi was cleared the next day. The headline for August 25th, Mm -hmm. the next day, was mass murder subject cleared. Police baffled. Apparently, 11 witnesses couldn't identify him as the mass murderer. And the remaining six witnesses said they were absolutely positive he wasn't. So some people were like, maybe, I don't know. I mean, maybe. And other people were like, absolutely not. Gotcha. But the police said they only had to clear up two things. But they were expected to release him that evening. They just needed to know what was up with his alibi and why did he have 45,000 yen in cash just hanging around his house. Cash he claims he borrowed from a friend. Mm-hmm. So on the day that they said they would release him, police continued to hold Hirasawa overnight to answer their last two questions. On August 26th, the next day, at 2.30 p.m., Hirasawa slashed his wrist with a ballpoint pen and wrote, I am innocent in blood on his cell wall. He was rushed to the hospital. And this would be one, the first of three suicide attempts that he made while in custody. Whoa. So after this initial suicide attempt, police made an announcement to the public. They basically said they believed his suicide attempt was an admission of guilt for... Other crimes he had committed. So everyone, you know, in the press pool was like, what? Right? (laughs) What crimes? Why are you investigating other things when you should be investigating the bank massacre? Like, why are you holding this guy? Right? Yeah, yeah. The police made no comment and they transferred Sanamichi to another department to be further interrogated. So soon afterwards, police clarify with the public that, sorry, sorry, we're just holding him until he could give a plausible explanation of where the money came from, mm-hmm. that they believed he tried to commit suicide to avoid telling them specifically about the cash. That's their impression. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Now, one might say 
history began to repeat itself because tons of people came out of the woodwork to now claim that Sadamichi Hirasawa tried to defraud them in some way or another. So despite <laughs> mounting pressure from the press and the attorney general's office, police refused to release Hirasawa. Mm -hmm. uh, they were developing this theory and <laughs> it's kind of complicated, but this is how I read it to be. Right. So shame on me if I'm wrong. Okay. But from what I understand, the theory went like this. Hirasawa had a bunch of cash. Lots of people claim that he tried to defraud them some of that involved like bank deposits. Mm -hmm. Money also comes from banks. So <laughs> obviously Hirasawa had a fixation with banks. And with that theory, they ended up now holding them. And with that theory, they continued to hold him through to September. <sighs> On September 3rd, 1948, Hirasawa confessed to defrauding people. Mm -hmm. So he just came out and he said, I defrauded people, right? Publicly. 48 hours later, police announced Hirasawa is being held on fraud charges. So up until now, the attorney general had been up in arms about how long police had held Hirasawa without charging him mm -hmm. and without any hard evidence, saying police were violating Hirasawa's civil rights. But by using his confession to charge Hirasawa with fraud, police could legally continue to hold him while they tried to find any hard evidence to link him to the bank murders, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So, of course, like, the response of the attorney general's office and here's how his lawyers is to be like, that's a loophole. You know it's a loophole. This is ridiculous. Totally, right? yeah. On September 10th, Police announced that they found out Hirasawa had actually deposited about 80,000 yen in a bank three days after the mass murder. So Hirasawa then says, hey, guys, finally, I'm going to tell you I got it from a patron, someone mm -hmm. who's supporting my artwork. They go and contact the patron. The patron denies any sort of mm. exchange. He says, I absolutely did not give him that money. Yeah. After that, Hirasawa went back into silence and refused to give any other reason for why he had these sums of money. On September 12th, police announced that Hirasawa had given his wife 65,000 yen at some point after the mass murders. So all told, these two amounts, plus the cash found in his home when they arrested him, just about totaled the cash stolen from the bank at the time of the murder. Mm -hmm. It was about 190,000 yen. Yeah. Now, on September 14th, just a few days later, police announced that Hirasawa sometimes used cyanide mixed with copper and egg whites to produce a particular green paint for his watercolor. No. And that he uses a pipette to do it. What? Wait, who said that? It just became, they just found that out? They found that out. That's like a part of his painting process is he does use cyanide in his painting. Now, according to Art and Society, I kind uh -huh. of knew this for some dumb reason, but uh -huh. I'm quoting these guys. This practice was actually widely used in paintings starting mm -hmm. in the 1700s using cyanide mixed with these with copper and these different things to produce blues and greens. Um, that is so cool. And it had been started to be practiced in Japan since the early 1800s. So it was a relatively in terms of like the scope of art, relatively new practice. Yeah. But it definitely had been around for a while and Hirasawa was definitely not the only one using it. it yeah, was, right. I mean, it was... Painters it, used it. Painters way before he was even alive used it. Right. But they said, 
Okay, he's we got cyanide. cyanide in his house, right? Right, sure. And then <laughs> this is just like the last button. The next, so people are saying like, okay, it's horrible that you're holding him. This is unethical. Da 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 da. And in support of the police's choice to hold him, two people came forward to police on the condition of uh, anonymity to tell them that Hirasawa performed 10 abortions on women over the years and deserved to be in police custody. So that accusation was never investigated <laughs> or substantiated, yeah. but it was publicized. And oh, is it just sure. me or does uh, this yet again feel similar to this bizarre mass confession? That yeah, of course. I mean, it's yeah. Just like now all of a sudden he's like an abortion doctor. It's just right. like a very... You know, whatever. But this was, again, bolstered by police to be like, see, he's a dangerous man that should be in custody. Right. right. So they're picking and choosing when they want these random public outbursts to serve their purposes. Right. Right. Okay. On September 28th, almost a full month after he was detained for questioning, police announced that Sadamichi Hirasawa confessed to the 12 bank murders. Mm -hmm. So the reaction of his lawyers was basically this. They straight up came out and said, it's incredibly disappointing that instead of collecting evidence and building a case, the police returned to the old tradition of putting all their efforts into obtaining, AKA coercing a confession. Mm -hmm. And during this time too, so the police are like, we got him, right? And then that's what Sadamichi's lawyers are saying. Also during this time, the Japanese press dropped a couple of bombshells as well out of the 20,000 suspects in the case mm -hmm. reporters found that only three people had actually been brought in for questioning and at this point the police department had spent a thousand yen over its entire annual budget just in pursuing this one case they had blown they were completely over budget just for the one case. oh my god and there's lots of other crazy shit going on you know what uh, i mean yeah so after his confession, the only person who got a one-on-one -on -one interview with Sadamichi Hirasawa was an American for the United Press Pool working for the Nippon Times. Hirasawa did the interview in English. Mm -hmm. It read in part, quote, Wiping tears from his eyes, the small 57-year-old artist said he felt relieved now that everything was over. And this is Sadamichi's quote. Quote, I don't have adequate words to express the regret I have for committing such a horrible crime. Hirasawa was emphatic in stating that police had treated him properly and had not employed third-degree methods to obtain the confession. Speaking in English, he described Chief Prosecutor Tagagi as, quote, highest class gentleman. All right, so apparently everything's above board. Right? Okay. The article went on to say, quote, Sometimes smiling softly, sometimes crying. He said, I was treated man to man fairly. This treatment enabled me to bring out the best in my mind. I do not feel like making any statement in my defense at this time, but I can say that part of my motive was due to science. We were unable to get him to explain this last statement which did not seem to us to be exactly clear. He <laughs> sat there without answering. <sighs> he finished the interview by saying, quote, at last I am able to sleep. So he, okay. So that's, what? The, what do you mean what? I mean, just, yeah, they're like, he's able to sleep. Oh, he's also crazy? <laughs> that was That was the only... 
the only interview he did after he confessed. So that's the only thing that people got. He just said it was due to science, and then he just sat there and stared at them and wouldn't tell them what that meant. Oh. So this is the like completely un- like above board confession that he made. That's like his. Oh, that's his follow up to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So according to our source material, flowering of the bamboo by William Triplett, uh, the Metropolitan Police Board held a huge party to celebrate getting the confession with the public Uh using donations totaling over 300,000 yen. Oh, it just threw a big ass party. And later there were all these rumors that the donations were coerced by the police department that they had gone through and like forced people to give them money to throw this public party. Oh my God. That's like, so... I couldn't find any like other articles about that. Yeah. But like that's what that's what uh his research when talking to people, that's what he found out. That's so embarrassing. So in October nineteen forty eight, less than a month after his confession mm-hmm. and two months before his trial date, Sadamichi Hirasawa recanted his confession entirely, mm-hmm, claiming mm-hmm. he had been coerced. Mm-hmm. So after a lengthy trial and 23 months of jail time in his holding cell, Sadamichi Hirasawa was convicted of all 12 murders on July 25th, 1950, and sentenced to hang. Mm. For the next few years, Hirasawa filed appeals all the way up to the Supreme Court. In 1952, his wife divorced him, and the spring of 1955, the Supreme Court upheld the ruling. In an odd turn of events, throughout his entire incarceration, no one actually ever signed his death warrant. Mm -hmm. So his supporters believe this was because officials involved had doubts about his guilt. So what this all meant was Sadamichi Hirasawa remained unexecuted on death row for decades. In 1981, he got this famous lawyer named Makoto Endo who Uh had... He was really famous in Japan. He had recently represented this 19-year-old mass shooter Mm -hmm. who went on in jail to write several acclaimed novels before being executed. Mm -hmm. And this lawyer also defended a whole-ass Japanese gang who took the Japanese National Safety Committee to court because they designated this gang a violence group. Mm -hmm. And they were like, that's not fair. But they were a violence group. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this guy was kind of a cool one. He has a really interesting past. Yeah, yeah. Um, What do you mean uh, uh, Sadamichi's supporters? A lot of people, Uh I'm not going to go super far into it because it's detailed, but there was a writer who advocated on his behalf. So he had a legal team, but then he also had a bunch of people who just believe it was like a massive miscarriage of justice and mm-hmm, they kept mm-hmm. on were like pushing this case sure, that trying makes to sense. raise I money. They would uh-huh. hold art exhibitions to raise money. They did all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Actually the writer who founded the group that supported Hirasawa mm-hmm. ended up allowing Hirasawa to adopt his son. So when Hirasawa adopted his adult son, then his adult son took over trying to get this guy out of jail. Whoa. So it was like a lifelong cause for a handful of people to try to get him out of jail. Damn. Anyway, back to this new hotshot yeah. lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. Endo. Basically, his Hirasawa's lawyers argued that he had been in prison longer than was legally allowed. Basically, 
there was, I don't know if it still is, but there was a statute in Japanese law that basically said if anyone escapes from prison under a murder charge but is able to remain free for 30 years, they can no longer be executed for the for the crime. And at this point, Hirasawa had been on death row for over 30 years, mm-hmm. right? So they were like, you can't just keep this guy on death row for longer than if he had escaped that you would have just let, let him off, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But officials denied Hirasawa's release, arguing that the statute of limitations starts when the punishment begins. And the punishment doesn't begin until someone signs the death warrant, which up until that point, no one had. That is that is shady. That's shady as hell. That is shady. So Hirasawa became ill in 1987. Mm-hmm. Amnesty International petitioned for his release in April of that year. Hirasawa and his advocates applied 18 times for retrials over the years, all of which were denied. And Sadamichi Hirasawa died on May 10th, 1987, in a prison hospital at the age of 95 of mm. pneumonia. Mm. Efforts to clear Hirasawa's name continued even after his death. The final request for a retrial was rejected in 2013. Mm -hmm. So we're going to end this story on some conspiracy theory stuff. Yeah, I mean, there is so much to unpack, man. Okay, so aside from our source material book, Uh The Flowering of Bamboo by William Triplett, I'm also drawing on reporting by James Abrams for the Copley News Service Mm -hmm. and good old Wikipedia. (laughs) Okay, great. So first off, I'm just going to list some issues that Hirasawa's supporters and lawyers had with the case against him. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're just going to name these off since we didn't really talk about the trial. Yeah. One would be 11 people had contact with the killer and none of them could identify Hirasawa with any certainty. Sadamichi Hirasawa left his son-in-law in central Tokyo at 2.25 p.m. Yeah. on the day of the murders. And it basically seemed almost impossible he could have made it to the bank by 3 p.m. I actually looked this up on mm-hmm. Google Maps. And even today, outside of like the post-World War II Tokyo chaos, mm-hmm. that journey from central Tokyo, like mm-hmm. downtown Tokyo, to the bank takes between 25 and 30 minutes by train. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine how much longer it might have taken, right. you know, 80 years ago, whatever that was. And, you know, just to drive it home, the murders all happened just a few minutes after 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. So he would have had to, like, go completely across the city, change into this outfit, and get to the bank by 3 o'clock. And yeah. they're saying, that time-wise, it seemed almost impossible. Also, if Hirasawa's motivation was money, why did he leave 300,000 yen just sitting out in the open? Why would why would anyone's motivation for money, why would they do that, right? Right. The other thing that kept being brought up is based on eyewitness accounts, survivors from the crime, the murderer remained completely calm while watching these 12 people die. Yeah. Because he was so composed, police initially thought the man was a drug specialist with a military background. But for apparently no real reason, they completely abandoned that theory once they found Hirasawa. They just decided that's going out the window and we're Mm -hmm. not going to look at that anymore. 
According to interrogation transcripts and the investigations of Hirasawa's supporters and lawyers, there's a very strong case that Hirasawa legit had no working knowledge of poisons, aside from the cyanide that he used to paint with. Mm -hmm. Also, Hirasawa was never really able to give any accurate details about how he obtained the type of poison used in the murder. Because, in fact, while the poison behaved like potassium cyanide, which, you know, obviously could have been in his possession for mixing paints, investigators believed at the time that the poison used in the killings was probably something called nitrile hydrocyanide, mm -hmm. or I think what's commonly known now as hydrogen cyanide. And that's basically the liquid or gas form of cyanide. Potassium cyanide is a powder, right? Mm -hmm. So when he was mixing his paints, he would take a powder and mix it in with the egg white. And oh, copper, I get you. Right? right. But it was a liquid that he fed right. to the people, right? Right. So, and they still were like, God, it's so potent. And how is it? You know, like it felt very like could be potassium cyanide, but like probably wasn't, right? Yeah, it was something yeah. in that family. Well, what about any past prior psychotic psychopathic tendencies or behaviors or None. and what and what did, was he out there stealing money and defrauding people i mean as far as i have read like none of that was investigated it was just like testimony and was his how was his personal life was he like he was married and had a two daughters and he was close with his family i mean it, it's like that's as far as i've read I mean, maybe there's something that they didn't cover. And it sounds like his wife and daughter like laughed at the idea of him being a killer. Yeah. Like they were like. Like straight up laughed. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. At the time of the bank murders, hydrogen cyanide, that liquid form of, of cyanide, mm -hmm. actually wasn't available at all to the public. But it was being developed and worked with by the number nine research laboratory, a Japanese military research lab, also known as the Noburito Laboratory, that according to Wikipedia, quote, focused on clandestine activities and unconventional warfare, including energy weapons, intelligence and spycraft, chemical and biological weapons, poisons and currency counterfeiting. They also researched nuclear weapons and also chemical and biological weapons. Mm -hmm. um, the Noburito lab developed the f a fire balloon in World War II called the Fugo, which I don't know if you've heard about this, but they're basically like little small hot air balloons with a bomb attached. And Japan actually launched about 9,000 of these bombs over the Pacific Ocean at North, Ameri at North America to see if they could Reach. blow some shit up. Yeah. Uh, the only fatalities resulting from the balloon attack was one woman and her five kids oh, who man. found a Fugo in a park in Oregon and they messed around with it and accidentally detonated it. But other than that, everything else just That's so sad. But it did make its way all the way to the West to Coast. To Oregon, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, and just kind of like landed on the beach and like, what's this thing? Oh, that's really sad. I've never heard of that. You would. I feel like that would be... There were a few countries that did it, I think. Germany might have done it too, but yeah, it was, I've, I've heard yeah. of it. I don't know why, but Whoa. I've heard of it. But yeah, they were just like little hot. I mean, they weren't effective, <laughs> but they were these little hot air. Yeah, I get bombs. it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, there's this lab right. making Right, so there's weapons. this lab making that stuff. Yeah. And also, I don't know if you knew about this. I didn't, and I mm -hmm. kind of feel dumb, I guess, not for knowing this. Japan started experimenting in German warfare back in the 1930s. There was a unit 
in their army called Unit 731, which was a covert research and development group for the Imperial Japanese Army. And they Mm -hmm. specialized in biological and chemical warfare, and they experimented on humans using some of the crazy shit that was developed by the Noburito lab. So Mm -hmm. they were kind of working in tandem with each other. During the Second Sino-Japanese War, the Japanese military attacked Chinese troops with poison gas. So this was in the 30s. And according to Wikipedia, despite the usage of the gas being banned by the Treaty of Versailles and Hague Conventions, it's estimated Japanese the Japanese used poison gas on Chinese troops and civilians upwards of 2,000 times in the 1930s and the 1940s. Damn. They also would do other crazy shit. Like they bombed a Chinese city with fleas carrying the bubonic plague. Whoa. Um, and they would like spread that across like cities like on, from low flying planes or low flying planes jesus they also gave their own soldiers methamphetamines and what just to get them hyped yeah turn them into yeah yeah i think that the germans were doing yeah I, yeah that's a known thing i don't know it's still like but damn yeah well i mean i think I, it's just this is a pocket that i just didn't understand uh-huh. so it's, it's kind of interesting most of this is pieced together so god bless me if i'm incorrect but i think yeah i'm reading through like wikipedia and then these other articles mm-hmm. and i was able to piece this history together okay so during world war ii unit 731 used a cover of being a lumber mill and referred to its human test subjects as logs as sort of like a joke play on words that's they terrible. even they even published some of their findings like in medical journals mm-hmm. just saying they used monkeys instead of humans so ah. they were they were already publishing that kind of stuff yeah so the victims were injected with diseases and STDs they would do um, practice vivisection which is like surgery without anesthesia to kind of see what happens there was just lots of experiments they would do stuff like amputate a limb from someone and then reattach the limb to random parts of the body what they spread typhoid cholera and anthrax into water sources in china they would go and find places where there weren't any japanese troops and drop supplies with poison food and candy um they would inject patients with different animal blood like horse blood to see what happens they give them these blood transfusions and they die within two hours or something like did that. S- was sadamichi working for them was he like in on this is that like <laughs> no. oh why are you bringing this up this so is listen okay just shut up <laughs> um and then they would just basically try to learn things i mean i don't know they were horrible i mean it's just like horrible stuff there they would like kill people in all these different various ways that they'd have starvation or spinning them in a centrifuge until they died and then honestly some of this stuff i'm not even going to list here because it's very deeply disturbing worse than that stuff yeah there's a lot of really 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 drastic stuff so that was what was going on um in the special covert unit 731 So after World War II, some of those officials from that unit, 731, were captured by the Soviets and tried for war crimes in the Khabarovsk war crime trials. Mm -hmm. But Unit 73 members captured by the U.S. managed to strike a deal with the Americans to share the results of their studies in exchange for immunity for all 731 personnel being charged with war crimes or having to face the International Military Tribunal. 
So that's so jacked up. The Americans are like, what you did is truly horrible. But what'd you find out? It kind of was that. Also, just for the record, from yeah. what I've read, the Russians did try these members, but then they also, as soon as that trial was over, that's when they opened their first biological like warfare laboratory. <laughs> so there was definitely some exchange <laughs> between people. But anyway, we did. Apparently, <laughs> the U.S. didn't pros- We like shield a lot of these yeah. guys from okay. prosecution. Okay, all right. So while like Joseph Mengele, who we uh-huh. know is like the famous SS officer who did very similar horrific experiments on um like on prisoners in auschwitz yeah was so while joseph mengele who we know right is this super famous ss officer this german officer yeah who tortured well, people tortured and, people yeah. and held these horrific experiments yeah he was on the run to argentina during the nuremberg trials mm-hmm. High-level officials from Company 731 just straight up went to work for the U.S. Army Chemical Corps. Mm. Some of those officials were even said to be housed in Tokyo in safe houses all during 1947 and 1948 when all of this bank stuff was happening. Mm -hmm. So, officially, claims from Chinese officials about the human experimentation carried out by the Japanese military were dismissed by U.S. officials as propaganda. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happened with the trials the USSR held for the members of Unit 731 that they themselves captured. Yeah. Right? But how does all this have to do with Satomichi Hirasawa? I'm dying to know. <laughs> so according to William Triplett's research, before Satomichi Hirasawa was arrested, a police inspector was investigating a member of Unit 731 who was living in Tokyo mm-hmm, at the time. Mm-hmm. He apparently had some drug addiction problems and he was kind of a wild ass. Mm-hmm. The inspector, his name was Hideo Naoruchi, if I said that correctly, came forward with information that members of the 731 company were under house arrest in Tokyo at the time and were exchanging biological weapons information with the Americans. And his theory was the killer was one of these 731 company members. Uh huh. After this info was leaked to the Japanese press, Nauchi's investigation was shut down and his full investigation wasn't made public until 1957, which was two years after the Supreme Court upheld Sadamichi Hirasawa's conviction. Damn. So that's the idea. <sighs> Nothing's proven. It just seems impossible to me that someone just like out of the blue is just going to be ridiculously cold-blooded and just be very, very composed and just poison murder a room full of people that are like being very nice and And not take all the money well and also i mean the money is like if you're doing that then you're not really doing it for the money if you're killed you know what i mean like you're not gonna go through that and be that kind of person that actually completes that sort of horrible sadistic slow murder because you're like whoo 300,000 yen baby i got it like the you know, you're playing a different sport at so that point. So that's your thought. That's my but, thought. But I think that basically this trial was treated as a bank heist. You know? Yeah. And that is what people were thinking. It's a bank heist. And what's crazy to me mm-hmm. is like, if you're really going to be like, ignore all the sadistic, psychopathic things that you yeah. have to do in order to get yourself into a place where you can watch all these people die, yeah. poison them. 
if you're going to ignore all that and then say it's a bank heist. I think it's really hard to also claim that and as a bank heist, I just didn't feel like taking the rest of it. For sure. The only thing that's weird about the super sadistic like science people doing it is they needed test runs. Like the first time didn't work. It's like, I thought you're supposed to be a genius with poison. I think that everything is like that. I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody, the FBI does dry test runs and trainings and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. I mean, yeah, that's true. It's definitely not. um, I mean, to be honest, it starts being like, did the Americans do it to see like what they could get away with? I mean, it's just like you start. It, that's all conspiracy stuff. But you just yeah, like, Mural dropping bombs over here. Well, I'm like reading it going like, why? Who these guys were obviously under surveillance. They were uh-huh. in house arrests, and yeah. they were able to like escape these safe houses to do multiple dry runs of this like technical experimentation with a poison that isn't available to the public with equipment that's not available to the public. It was like, I mean, it's pretty wild that they could get out and have these like successful dry runs and no one ever got arrested (laughs) except for this one painter who died in prison. with No one signing his death warrant. Miro just gave me one of those looks where her eyebrows went through the ceiling. <sighs> Man. <laughs> That's just brutal. That's just brutal. All right. That was a good ass story, Muriel. Damn, man. All right. God, because you know, you always hear about these World War II and prior like evil scientists. Yeah. You know? I just hadn't really heard about, I just didn't hear that on the Japanese side. I've heard like, like it, like whatever I was, you know, reading, yeah. you know, generally speaking in the American educational system, I just didn't get that piece of it. And I was reading this and I was like, Oh, I had no idea. I just didn't know. I mean, of course, horrible. I mean, horrible things happened during war. Yeah. And you know, this world war two is like this particularly like, awful sadistic you know you've got hitler you've got the whole i mean it's just like this awful sadistic period in human history yeah and i think so it shouldn't be that surprising i guess but i was like the bubonic plague fleas like i was just like this is insane you know i feel like that weird interview he gave where he said it was because of science dot 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 and trailed off you know what i'm i don't know like maybe maybe they got to him and forced him to do it or something you know you know, it could have been, except for none of the witnesses thought it was him. None of the witnesses <laughs> thought it was him. <laughs> I got to go to work, man. All right, we got to go. All right, you want to give your resources one last time, Muriel? <laughs> right. It would be Flowering of the Bamboo, which is a really interesting book by William Triplett. And then also James Abrams for the Copley News Service wrote a few really cool articles about this case in the 1970s. Well, I'm just going to latch on to the fact that maybe he was innocent so I can continue to romanticize painters. Okay. <laughs>
want to thank our newest five-star reviewers, Loops2590 and Fun Appster. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to Muriel's Murders. She did all the research, writing, and hosting, and I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. This podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. As some of you know, we have had a non-murder podcast called Hell in Your 30s for the last five years. Well, we are retiring that podcast, but not entirely. Once a month, we'll be putting out an episode of the podcast formerly known as Hella in Your 30s on the Muriel's Murders Patreon. So now our subscribers are getting three episodes a month. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow. And if you're listening on Spotify, you can rate us there as well as add this episode to a playlist of podcasts you think your friends would tune into. It's a great gift. Yes. Uh, <laughs> sharing this podcast with the loved ones in your life is huge for us. Find us on social media at Muriel's Murders. Our DMs are open. Our music is by Mario Casolini. Find him on Instagram at Casolini Beats. All right, that's it. We love you. Goodbye. I'm Brian Husky. I'm bald. And I'm Charlie Sanders, and I'm also bald. And we host Bald Talk on the Campfire Media Network. Bald Talk is the podcast where two bald comedians talk to anyone bald about being bald. But this show isn't just for baldies, Brian. Harrow's will love it, too. Bald Talk gets into vulnerability, vanity, insecurity, and self-acceptance, reminding us that we all have our respective bald spots. Not that bald spots are a bad thing. No way. I mean, my entire head is one big bald spot. It is one huge, beautiful bald spot, Charlie. Get Bald Talk on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, I I have like a little bit of hair, but not like you. Like you're really bald. I'm truly bald. Great. I mean, it's I'm great. balder I than it. you. You are balder than me. Only on Bald Talk. Campfire. <laughs>